Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Good Zoo Vine for March 18th, 2018. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And good evening, Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, good to have y'all both on. Um, tonight, just to let everybody know, uh, we're going to have... From the New York Times, Glenn Thrush. This will be the third time he's been on, but if I'm not mistaken, this will be the first time since he's been with the New York Times, uh, one of our favorite guests. And we're going to talk to him a lot about national goings-on, in particular uh, Donald Trump and, and what he's been doing um, with firings and personnel changes and the way he's reacted some things here in about 20 minutes. But until then, there was a special election the other night. We made our predictions, and none of us were dead wrong because I think all of us picked uh, Connor Lamb. But um, I think it was even closer than y'all thought, and I actually had the highest number, so I guess I was the most wrong of any of us. Um, but w- what a squeaker. Uh, Catherine, um, what do you think of the results? What do you think they mean? Well, I'm, I'm thrilled by the results. Um, I'm not sure that they mean – you know, I'm I'm always hesitant to uh, carry results of a specific, especially a special election, that they have some, you know, meaningful impact on the upcoming um, mid mid the upcoming 2018 elections. But it was great to, you know, I, I'll be honest with you, I really did not want to watch the um, results that night. I I just get so anxious. So I went to bed really, really early, and then I got up really, really early and saw the, you know, sort of uh, the results that weren't finalized and still are in question, apparently, by the GOP. But, you know, it was very tight, but, you know, a win's a win, as we often say in our little texts back and forth to each other. So good news, good candidate. I think I think that was really helpful. I think Lane was a, was a really good candidate, especially for that district. And I think uh, Saccone was probably not as good a candidate for the GOP. They even had kind of admitted that. Tim, what do you think? Yes. I don't know. I, I know that since the vote total, final vote total was announced, the Republicans have really tried to paint this in just any light other than negative and I I, I, uh, I kind of think to no avail. Um, some some on the blogs, you, you guys are not going to believe this, for a talking point that they were searching for late in the week, even tried to blame the loss on Drew Miller. And people are scratching their heads listening to me and saying, who in the world is Drew Miller? Well, Drew Miller was the libertarian candidate up there who got, all of 1,379 <laughs> votes are 0.6%. But the difference between Lamb and Saccone was 627 votes. It's all Miller's fault. I mean, give me a break. First of all, he's a libertarian. There's always going to be a libertarian. And I do know when the libertarians ain't running, they, they're generally going to vote. Republican, but who knows how many of those people would have even voted, and I bet a handful of them would have voted for Lamb to boot. So how can they, you know, anything but their guy, and certainly anything but our president, who 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 has run as far away from this as he possibly could the rest of the week by making other news that we'll discuss later. But the bottom line to me. Is I kind of think this is a sort of a major deal. It's a Democratic victory in a district that Trump won by 19 points. If it was only one race in the last couple of years, I wouldn't think much. But this just keeps seem, seeming to happen. 
Uh, Democrats, after you throw this race in, are picking up what? Like 14 points on average per race of any type in all of these special elections and in Virginia and New Jersey and all of these places. Uh, I, I see a trend developing that should be very troublesome for the Republicans, don't you, David? Yes. Uh, actually, they, I heard some data on this. Not only did Donald Trump win it by 18, Mitt Romney won it by double digits. I, I think John McCain won it not by double digits, but really close, outside the margin of error. This is by far a Republican district. Um, I think, you know, whatever the remnants were, like in 96, Bill Clinton won. That's the last time it's gone Democratic. Um, and, and so, therefore, well, this is just not a good well, situation for Republicans mathematically. Well, Tim? Uh, another, another point, you remember when we talked about this last week, guys, the, the union vote was brought up that it might make a difference. Well, it certainly did. All those unions endorsed Lamb. And a lot of that membership that voted for Donald Trump two years ago came out and voted for Lamb. And look at the difference in the race here, 0.2%. They made the difference. That's how he won this race right there. Yeah, it was very much about this district. Mike Mickus was on the other week, and he had talked about this. And you had to really understand western Pennsylvania and that's what the party, Democratic Party did here um, to shape it and take advantage of the energy. I, I mean, I think there's no way that anybody could paint this as anything but another sign at how 2018's looking uh, for the Democrats mm-hmm. winning another race, another type of race, the congressional seat, another area, uh, the industrial Midwest. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they've won in the South, they've won in the industrial Midwest, they've won state House and state Senate seats all across the country. Um, so it's just a different, another data point looking at that same trend. You know, Rick Saccone, he may not have been a good candidate, but I, I, I don't think it really mattered. I mean, I guess with a race that's this close, every little thing matters. You know, how traffic was that day and the weather and yeah. the libertarian. You can point mm-hmm. to everything. But the fact that that sucker tightened up 18% didn't have anything to do with Rick Saccone. Um, he's probably going to be their fall guy, um, but apparently he's going to run a different district. Uh, who knows, although he may have trouble with the primary because the Republicans are even better than the Democrats about placing the blame on a loser. Um, but th- speaking of that, I, I did want to juxtapose this because I've heard it brought up on two different sources this past week. They compared it to the Georgia 6 race. And they talked about how Connor Lamb was a much better candidate that had a much better bio that fit his district much better than John Ossoff. Now, also, you probably could say Karen Handel was a better candidate than Rick Saccone, but more importantly, they kind of pointed the two Democratic candidates and said, not Connor Lamb, because obviously he was more right for that district, but if you would have had a better candidate that seemed to be of that suburban north metro district could that race have been uh, won by the democrats Catherine, have you heard that and what do you make of what that that narrative well i've seen some of that um discussion around this week um you know i you know it's easy to be a monday morning quarterback about these things i think the main the main problem with Asaf really was that he didn't live in the district. Um, he was from the district. He just at that at that time didn't live there. So, and I think that was a you know a difficult a, a difficult argument to make on his from his campaign. So, but I, I just it was a different race. It's a different you know. I mean, I I, I have a hard time. Like I said, I just you know that was whatever, six months ago, a year ago, this is now. It was that was this district. This is you know, I think it's hard hard to make those comparisons. Yeah, yeah, Tim, have you heard um storyline, if you will? Yeah, yes I have and uh I I, I sorta of am where Catherine is on this. This this race down here 
even though it was its own unique race with its own unique set of candidates, issues, uh, the layout of the district and all of that, um, you know, the Republicans can, I guess, crow a little bit about holding that district. But on the other hand, it also fits into that larger narrative that we're talking about of races that are a lot closer than they should be even yeah. when Democrats are not winning them, they are getting energized and they are maximizing their votes. And I am here to tell you, if they pick up percent across the country on average, no matter what happened down there in, in Karen Handel's district, uh, we we are going to flip a bunch of seats on election night. And Karen Handel is also going to have to sweat it out on election night as well. If that kind of thing is going on, yeah, I definitely think that that's that's one of those hundred and twenty seats, like the most competitive hundred and twenty seats. So they said that, yeah, you know, probably Republicans will have to get ready for all of those seats that they probably won by eight or ten points normally. Uh, and she would definitely fit is, in that David, bill. And the thing is, guys, that makes it worse. It's a lot easier to play offense in those districts than it is to play defense in that many districts together. We're talking nationalize the election here, and the team playing defense is the team that's in the White House during the midterms, and we know how that normally goes anyway, right? Yeah, historical trends no matter what. Yeah, um, one kind of related narrative, and we've talked about this before, and, and I think all of us have given our thoughts. But um, people said that Connor Lamb had said that you know he wasn't Nancy Pelosi; he'd be different than her. I don't know if he ever said if he would vote for a speaker or not. But the Republicans still like this tactic. I guess it worked really, really well in 2010. I'm very suspect that it can work in 2018. I think these things have a shelf life; they burn out. And people get wise to him. But apparently in this race, Connor Lamb felt the need to somewhat distance himself from um, Nancy Pelosi. What implications does this have for her, do you think, Catherine? Um, I think that was a pretty deliberate – you know, he's a moderate. He's not uh, – I mean, uh, though they accused him – I think it's interesting to look at some of the before and after um, sort of evaluations of him by the GOP. Like before the race, he was super liberal, you know, Mr. You know Pelosi, close to Pelosi. And then afterwards, they said, well, they had to run a conservative Democrat in order to win. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, I, th- I mean, I think he had to look at his district and say, well, you know, Nancy Pelosi probably isn't very popular here. And I'm a moderate. I'm not as liberal as Nancy Pelosi, so I'm going to pull away from her. I think that, um, you know, I probably agree with Nancy Pelosi on more things than he does, but I think that we have to let our candidates run their own races and not expect them to – we talked about this two weeks ago, I think. We have to let them run their own races – within reason of, you know, whatever our national platform is and and focus on the things that are important in their district. So if he believed that there was so good reason to believe that Nancy Pelosi wasn't popular in his district, then he shouldn't he should run on the things that are important and to the, that constituency. Yeah. What does it mean Tim, to her? I don't I think it matters her. to her. I, I think you're absolutely right. I heard that and I get the sense. Uh, Tim, I went to a political training Back around, I want to say 98, Tom Murphy um, was one of the speakers, and he told all these guys and ladies running for um, state house, he said, run with me, run against me, just win. Um, And he had thick skin about it. And I heard Nancy Pelosi had thick skin about it, too, um, because she wants to win these seats. Um, what What implications do you think this has for, if any? Well, I remember the first guy that, that, that used to say that a lot was Lyndon Johnson. He would tell people, guys, if it helps you to run against me, go ahead and do it. Tip O'Neill said the same thing. The the sage of politicos 
do say that. Um, as far as implications, you know, I was sitting here thinking there might be one other uh, thing going on here. Connor Lamb is 33 or so, I believe. Uh, Speaker Pelosi is in her late 70s. It could be a generational thing. There could be a new crop of candidates, albeit moderates mostly, who are coming onto the scene now and thinking perhaps it is time for a change, for, for, for new leadership at the top of our party, including uh, congressionally. Yeah, uh, Absolutely. And and that debate would be healthy right now. I've nothing against the speaker either. And like Catherine, I'm sure I would agree with her on about 90% of all the issues or more. Uh, but I see where he's coming from, and I think we're going to see that from a lot of the newer candidates this year, not only to diffuse the issue that the Republicans are trying to make of her once again, as you correctly said, David, but uh, the fact that maybe it, they, they're just thinking, well, it, it's time to bring the new in. What do you think? Yeah, I, it could be that, that, you know, the party, I think probably, it seems like always in politics, both need to get younger. Um, the face of the Republicans is in his 70s, too. Um, but this seems like even more so the, the Democratic Party, a lot of the people that are known quantities like Bernie Sanders and Nancy Pelosi are older, so it would be good to get a little bit younger at times. Although, you know, if they can retake the House, this would be twice in her tenure they were able to retake the House. Uh, that doesn't happen a lot oh. in, in uh, American history. Yeah, I've said got it has no never problem. happened. Hey, i got yeah. no problem with her being Speaker again, you know. <laughs> yeah, and, cause, um, and we'll go from there. Um, one more question I had to, from y'all. I know some more people have retired here and there, and there could be with all these administration shakeups. Are there any more special elections at the congressional level um, that y'all that are looming that could be competitive? I know there's some around, but some could just be 40-point races, and those aren't competitive, like the Utah race back a few months ago. Catherine, have you okay. heard anything, Tim? I don't know of any. Yeah, well, Jim. you know, uh, you'll have to forgive me because I don't have my computer in front of me and my memory isn't what it once was. But there are two um, special congressional elections coming up pretty soon. The first one, I forgot where it is, but it is unwinnable, they say, for the Democrats. But that second one. That's coming up like May, June, right along in there. I'm going to find out where that is this week. Uh, They say watch that one. So in a couple of months, we're probably going to have a repeat of what we just had Tuesday night, a nail-biter in a Republican district, and I just can't recall where that is. Was it in Arizona? I want to say it's out west in Arizona because it would be a new venue. Could be. Um, could, could um, oh oh uh, 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 Muck, Muck, Muck Sally's district perhaps you know she's or, moving or up and Tr- running Trent Franks I thought Franks is uh, uh, coming up yeah McSally's district will so, be open so, seat yeah so there's two open ones there eh I think McSally's will be open in the fall um, so you know we'll see there um, she didn't vacate yeah, I see what these I don't know. I have, I'd have to look better, and, and that's some research oh. we'll have to do as we look at these things. To me, these uh, special elections are kind of like these football games that get played on Thursday night. They may not be the best game of the week, but they're the only game of the week, so they get way <laughs> more scrutiny, analysis, and viewers um, than they would otherwise. So it's just a trend to see and go from there. Um, I know we're going to be switching up topics pretty quickly here, but in the interim, we can at least get the discussion started. Um, there were two articles in the Georgia governor's race that came out, um, both regarding Stacey Abrams. The first one was saying that she owes around $50,000 to the IRS. The second one was about state contracts that helped a startup. I think the first one was easier to understand, if you will, um, what it is. Um, but, Tim, what were your thoughts on – these two stories, will they have an impact 
um, well, in the race or anything? Be, be, being as unbiased as I can possibly be, because obviously we're talking about a Democrat here, I would say, politically speaking, the first one is probably not a big problem. Especially when you look at the occupant of the White House who won't even show us his taxes, tax returns and things. So I'm going to say that one probably is not a big problem. Plus, it's something that she can take care of by, you know, paying. Uh, the second one could be, of course, um, you know, if, if something happened like she, God forbid, used her position to score contracts or to get special funding for this business. Uh, that she was involved in, obviously would have a major conflict of interest, and and that could be a world of problems. Um, I I will say this. I don't think it will affect voters much in this race. Um, You know, back when uh, Stacey Evans had to issue, uh, what was it, with her vote on school vouchers, it kind of, you know, it was a thing for a little while, and then it kind of went on. I think unless something just huge happens, like that second issue comes into a major problem, I think Democratic voters have already kind of chosen up sides on this one. I don't know why I have that feeling, but I kind of have that feeling. So there. Yeah. um, Catherine, if you want to have a take on it, that's fine. Or if you want me to have my take on it, just uh, do you have any thoughts? Oh, okay. I have thoughts about it. I th- I agree with him. I think the um, IRS situation. You know, she explained she explained it. It all made sense. She was helping support her family. Um, she has aging parents who I think it sounds like have some health issues, and and she's paying off the debt. She's got a payment plan with the IRS. This is not uncommon. People do this mm-hmm. all the time. It's just yep. not. I mean, maybe it it seems uncommon to people who don't I mean she's a small business owner so that makes that adds to the um probably to the complications that it were involved but that that I don't think is a problem I just I just don't see it as a you know she's paying it off she's got a payment plan whatever the second one you know I've I will admit that it was a little complicated for me to understand it I had to read the article a couple times before I sort of figured out what the sort of criticism was and then I had to think about it and she has been pretty tra- pretty open about you know she was not involved in the negotiations she says she um you know had a I mean she did continue to be have an executive position in the company but she was not involved in these you know negotiations for these contracts and I think there was some loan um some discount discounted loan deals or something but i will say that there's a lot she's getting a lot of criticism you know uh, some of my friends on facebook have been beaten up on her and i'm sure tim's probably seen some of that too oh yeah and i um i lose my patience with my democratic friends who beat up on other democrats you know fine if you don't support um representative abrams or leader abrams whatever you want to call her that's fine but let's just not beat up on her if you want to support, just like if you're supporting um, Representative Abrams, please don't beat up on Evans. It's, you know, let's let's try to be a family with differing opinions and wait it out until the end, until the primary is over. I just, I, I just that's my, sort of my feeling. I just I don't see. I agree. If there if if something comes out that paints a different picture than what. Um, Stacey Abrams has said about this, these negotiations and this um, and these contracts. Then I, I I imagine it could be a problem, but the way it looks right now, it doesn't seem to be. Yeah, here's kind of my fear is um, that this won't be an issue at all in the Democratic primary. It won't sway anybody. It'll you know, and it, the race will be won and lost on other things. Which is fine and which is good in many ways, but then the Republicans will be able to use this with swing voters, and it will mm. be a problem. And I'm, you know, I'm projecting um, out for conjecture's sake that she would win the, the the nomination, and then the, the Republicans can use it because you know anything will be used against you, 
in a general yeah. election. And that's, I guess, my fear is it, um, you just, just – It's. I think it's going to be tough to win in 2018 in this environment in Georgia, even with the wind at our backs. And I think we need a lot of things you know, to go perfect. And I don't think a yep. contested primary and other things are getting us there. Tim? Yeah, I agree with you. We do, we do not need a bloodbath a la 2006. We don't need that. We get past the primary, though, and get our nominee. Uh, I still think just this one year, the overriding specter of Donald Trump, <laughs> either positive or negative, in state after state after state after state, is going to have a profound effect on all these races, much more so than, say, issues. Now, if it's something like Roy Moore or something, that, that's different, yeah. I guess, uh, that that kind of flawed candidate. But we're talking about the, these uh, things we see all the time, Paints, this sort of thing. Donald Trump is going to be the issue everywhere. Like I said, positive or negative, I, I really think that's going to be the case. <laughs> yeah, I just I could just see a scenario that you know Ted Cruz loses in Texas. We retain every Senate seat in all these tough places. We rewin the governor's mansion of Florida. Um, you know, all these different things happen. There's one more in the oh Tennessee. Phil Bredesen wins. And we're thinking, man, we're making such progress. And in Georgia, we're stuck with a bunch of Republicans top to bottom again, and they'll all be incumbents, and they'll probably be running for re-election with a Democratic president, and we're going to stall this growth. I just, I just have this fear about this campaign. And mind you, I'm the person that thought Connor Lamb was going to win by five, and I thought – uh, the Virginia governor's race, Ralph Northam will win by five, and I was the one that picked Roy Moore. I'm the rosy, sunny guy that's the internal optimist, but for some reason on this Georgia governor's race, what I see so far, I just don't feel good about it. And I hate to say that, but it's really uh, a gut feeling I have. Catherine, mm. talk me off the list. Well, I think um, we have two really good candidates on the Democratic side, and um, either one will be an excellent governor. And while they may have some flaws as candidates, I think we can overcome those. I think we have a very engaged um, – I, I feel like we have an engaged um, Democratic um, – we have engaged Democrats and uh, people who haven't voted before who are um, – concerned about the country because of Donald Trump, as well as concerned about the state because of things that are going on here, you know, healthcare, economic um, inequality, uh, uh, housing, all those kind of things that our candidates and education that our candidates are, are going to be talking about. And I don't know that um, the GOP candidates are going to be able to speak on those issues from an authentic lens. So I think, um, I think those are, those are, I'm optimistic about those things, but it is Georgia and, um, you know, I could be wrong, but I feel like Tim, I feel like there's a, it's different this year because of, um, Donald Trump and because of, um, the, these two dynamic candidates that we have. So I don't know if that talked you off the ledge, but. Well, and and here's the thing, I think that they're incredibly talented, smart um, women that if you were had a company and you interviewed them, you want to find jobs for both of them. But in politics, perception is reality, and, and people have these things that they have this, oh, or they like me, or they, do they understand what I'm all about. And I just don't know how well they'll connect. Um, with these swing voters, these voters that may have leaned Republican, yeah, see, I don't, I don't think, that we need to flip back. I think, it's, um, I think it's a mistake to worry about the swing voters. I, I think the thing that I think we I think we have to engage the people who aren't voting, and that's what well, we just, that's what Stacey yeah. Abrams has been doing for the last three years. 
Well, we just said, though, we, we, Connor Lamb won because he took union households. One of the big reasons we feel is because he took union households that voted for Donald Trump, and he put them back in the Democratic column. That's a twofer. And then Roy Moore. We um, know that there are places that he got votes that those people voted for Republicans in the past, but they couldn't stomach Roy Moore, and they voted for Doug Jones. That's a twofer. I love twofers. Tim, what are your thoughts on what I'm trying to do? <laughs> well, uh, there's a few things going on. With this dynamic of Trump, what we've been seeing is uh, uh, a lot of female voters turned off by him, uh, voting in big numbers in these special elections for Democrats. We have seen uh, minority voters crawling out of the woodwork. Right. To vote Democratic in these special elections We have seen Trump bleeding some of his base And Donald Trump is taking care of that for us Across the board regardless of who we're running um, we're, we're running two pretty good candidates Now I know a worry is the gender bias thing and I just think maybe 2018 is the year to take that thing out for a spin and see what it happens or what happens. I know we've never elected a female governor or senator in this state, but someday we're going to do it. Might as well give it a shot this year. And, and they're the two that stepped up to the plate. And, and let's see what happens here. Why not? Yeah, I mean, no, I don't think it's getting the female closer thing closer, that's the issue at all. It's yeah, yeah. It, it's I mean, we'll see it. I, I want to be wrong and I'm going to vote for whichever Stacy it is that's the nominee. I don't want anybody to get the wrong opinion. Um, it's just I, I got to see maybe as we get closer and the primaries over and it's down one on one. Yeah, we'll um, figure it out. L let me I, I will tell you that we're going to talk a lot about these issues, these national issues with Glenn Thrush in about five minutes, it looks like. Um, but until then, there was one that we had wanted to talk about. Um, at some point in the show, and that was um, Chief of Staff John Kelly, how much he knew about some of these firings. We'll talk about the Rex Tillerson firing, firing later, but apparently he wasn't even told that it would be happening at the moment it happened. I think he did know that it would be happening at some point, but he apparently, I, I think, was you know yelling at the TV. He feels left out of the loop. Um, Catherine, what does this say about the chaos in the White House and I will say chaos, <laughs> not great energy. Um, if the chief of staff sounds like he's in the dark. It's insane. The whole thing is insane. I mean, how do you not tell your chief of staff that these things are happening? I mean, it's just, it's, it's crazy. It's just feel, I feel like it's, I mean, it's been off the chain forever, but I feel like it's it's a, a fever pitch now. Like, it's just, he's, mm. you know. So, the Attorney General didn't tell Kelly that he was going to fire the, I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know what to think about it. I feel like it's um, it's the the Trump show in real life now. What, 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 mm. the, yeah. the, what was the name of his well, show? It, it, it's like that the in real life now. Yeah. The Apprentice. The, the Apprentice. And, and, um, but this is just the John Kelly part, you know, how much he's in the dark. We didn't even talk about those issues, and now's a great time to start into that. Uh, welcome back to the show for about the third time, Mr. Glenn Thrush. Welcome, Glenn. Uh, great to be here. Yes, and I believe this is the first time you've been on since you've uh, been writing for the New York Times. Um so yeah, that's I real exciting. So. Yeah. Um, yes, well, great to be and, here. And, yeah, and another thing besides that, uh, just in the past year, I just noticed the other day you're back on Twitter. You you, you hopped off Twitter for a while and you got back on. Um, what constituted that? Well, you know, I'm, I'm covering an expanded news includes covering uh, the social safety net, sort of the forgotten Americans, as uh, Donald Trump referred to them. People who are, who are having uh, trouble because their jobs have been eliminated, uh, areas of the country that are having real economic problems. Um, 
and I just figured, you know, those are not the kind of stories that necessarily get a lot of attention these days, particularly with so much going on in the West Wing. So I, uh, when I hopped off Twitter, I was right in the thick of things, have, you know, dealing with Trump. Uh, and uh, I sort of felt a little overwhelmed by folks. And now I, I, I think it's a, a good time to sort of publicize a different kind of work. Well, and I tell you what, we'll probably have to have you on sooner than later to talk about some of the social safety net stuff. But, of course, there's been so much uh, great energy, not chaos, going on the web with the uh, White House <laughs> right, right. this past week <laughs> that, that we had to talk about that. And I'm going to ask about the first one, but that's going to leave plenty on the bone for Catherine and Tim. Rex Tillerson's firing, it seemed kind of out of left field, I think, for some of us not in the Beltway, but did y'all see it coming? Yeah, no, Rex Tillerson was supposed to be, you know, we had initially heard the rumor that Rex Tillerson was going to be out as early as last December. I mean, Donald Trump did not like Tillerson um, personally. And, you know, my reporting that I did last year indicated that to some degree, you know, Trump uh, felt, uh, I wouldn't say threatened, but Trump felt uh, that Tillerson, who ran, after all, one of the world's largest corporations in ExxonMobil, kind of looked down his nose at Trump. So so Trump felt that Tillerson uh, had for want of a better term, an attitude. And then, of course, we had some great reporting by my friend Carol Lee over at NBC News a few months ago where Tillerson (laughs) referred to Trump in the most derogatory way possible during a meeting with some officials at the Pentagon. You know, once that story broke, the writing was clearly on the wall. They were just looking for a time to get rid of him. And but but even so, the chaos around the decision and the fact that you know, uh, Chief of Staff Kelly had some reporters over at the White House last week and indicated the disrespect with which the termination was, was delivered. That's stunning. You know, this is the kind of stuff, and what I'm referring to is, is Kelly said this, that he told Kelly he was fired when Kelly was in the bathroom because he had had a stomach problem on this trip to Africa. You know, and I was thinking about that because, you know, those anecdotes uh, – have popped into the public domain before about other presidents, but usually it happens 20, 25 years after the president has left office. You know, we're seeing the kind of behind the curtain, ugly detail now in real time that people used to have to wait for tell all memoirs. So the acceleration uh, of the reality show aspect of this is just what's, what's stunning. And Tillerson by all accounts is a pretty dignified old school kind of guy and, uh, you got to imagine this must be a torturous situation for him. Well, and th- that brings up a question I didn't anticipate asking. A journalism question is the genie out of the bottle, and this is the way it's going to be no matter who's president going forward, or is this a byproduct of Donald Trump? And if you get someone who functions, say, more like President Obama or even J- George H.W. Bush, to use a Republican, that you're going to have a more professional – uh, White House and a more professional coverage of the White House. You know, I don't know. I mean, it depends on who our next president's going to be. Um, mm-hmm. Whether or not Donald Trump is uh, has created a paradigm that people want to see more of. The polls seem to indicate, indicate that that's not the case. But we don't know. I mean, people may have now have. I will tell you, reporters definitely uh, are, are scrambling over one, one uh, another to kind of get this kind of detail. We, you know, we always have the past 10 years. This has been the name of the game, getting the anecdotes. Uh, and I've been part of that, uh, for most of my career, but this has gotten to a level that's really almost unsustainable because it's, you know, I, uh, there've been instances, I'm not kidding in the reporting on this administration where reporters are reporting on meetings that have not yet concluded at the White House. Just think about that. There are people inside mm. these meetings that are texting to reporters in real time. So, so you know, it used to be that you had the Mark Halperin, John Heilman game change books and Politico for eight years, and we would we would write, you know, we were the kings of the next day TikTok. So, if something happened, now it's you know now it's become kind of everybody does them, but you know it's easy, it's easy to forget that five six years ago. Politico was really the only news outlet that was writing 
something would happen on a, on a Thursday and Politico would have a story on a Friday saying what happened behind the scenes. We, you know, we, ex- we helped accelerate that. Trump has kind of pushed that sucker into hyperspeed. Now, what could very well happen and seems to be a pattern that, that has, has happened in the presidency. You saw it when George W. Bush succeeded Bill Clinton. People don't remember part of his appeal and part of what he said was about restoring dignity to the Oval Office after the Monica Lewinsky scandal. Well, are we going to see the next president having that sort of attempting to restore that sort of dignity to the office? If you look at the polls, people don't necessarily like the shenanigans. But, you know, we had, a, I believe it was an NBC mom, uh, I think it was a Monmouth poll today that came out showing that Donald Trump has a 42% approval rating. That's really not far off of what Barack Obama was getting in the early part of his second term. Yeah, that is a pretty amazing number uh, compared to some we've seen. Well, I'm going to be fair to uh, Catherine and Tim and pass it along for some more questions. Catherine? Hey, Glenn. Thanks for being on. It's nice to hear you hear from you again. Um, uh, good I, to be on. I read your article about the SNAP program and sort of the overreaching um, meanness of it. <laughs> and, you know, we love to hear – we love to see – our former governor, Sonny Perdue, in the news, yep. of course. And I, I had to, I couldn't help but think about that and the McCabe um, firing and just the sort of meanness of this all. Like, and I'm just wondering if this meanness is what might be the the thing that people finally respond to. You know, well, we. I just feel like, I mean, I think this McCabe firing was so mean, you know, two days before his pension. I mean, it's just crazy. But um, so what do you, have, have you thought about that? Like what, I mean, have you thought about what's going to be, the, what's the thing that's going to, I mean, I certainly hope it's not Stormy Daniels that's the thing that's going to turn people against uh, Donald Trump. But Well, do, look, Donald Trump's been in our political lives now for a little over two years and, you know, I think almost every waking minute anyone who ever covers him uh, is spent wondering what the thing is going to be. And so far, there <laughs> hasn't been one. <laughs> and, and look, I mean, I, the, the point about the, the vindic- the pettiness and the vindictiveness, you know, um, it is Nixonian in, in terms of the McCabe thing. You know, on the other hand, McCabe, um, it does appear that there were questions even at the FBI of his behavior, but it is very clear that the president and his legal team and, and attorney general sessions um, are, you know, you know, they, they can see a profitable news story when they have one and, and discrediting anyone associated with the investigation. And as your listeners probably know, McCabe has turned over some of his notes to, uh, uh, to Robert Mueller, you know, that, that is, is the name of the game here now in terms of the snap benefits that you know that was i'm glad you noticed that that to me was an extraordinary situation and again for people who don't know what happened is right before the budget came out uh former governor purdue and mick mulvaney the uh the white house budget director inserted this provision into the into uh the budget for the snap program which is really what most people know as food stamps and it's it's an entitlement that a lot of working poor people have. It isn't just something that, that you know, folks who are homeless or on public assistance receive. A lot, most of the people, the majority of people, are either disabled, elderly, uh, too young to work in school, or have jobs. I think something like 57 or 58 percent of SNAP recipients have jobs. But there's a provision that they no longer be able to use their electronic benefits cards, walk into a, a grocery store, you know, a food line or a Kroger's, and buy their food but just get a box shipped to them where the food is already pre-selected. You know, it, nobody, even the most draconian pe- folks in this field, believe that that was a good idea. And I did a little bit of reporting on that, and I discovered that Purdue staff, I don't know if it was Purdue himself, and Mulvaney decided that would be a nice way to shake things up. They did not have any real expectation that anyone in their own party on the Hill, the Republicans who would have to pass this thing, would go for it. It was dead on arrival, dead before arrival, um, nor would Democrats abide it. Um, so this was done, as you pointed out, uh, you know, you could say it's for spite. I can't attribute motive 
but I was definitely able to report that it was done to kind of get people's attention. So on one hand, with McCabe, you have something that is clearly spiteful and clearly designed to help the president defend himself. And in the case of the, the food stamp snap issue, you have an, an instance, it's almost, it's almost government by prank. Uh, of coming yeah. up with an idea you know isn't <laughs> well, going they even, to succeed. They, somebody, yeah. one of them even referred to it as like like blue apron for the poor. Like really? The, yeah. I, it it's like just, no apron. Yes. Yeah. yeah exactly. Here, <laughs> we'll, 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 like, we'll tell yeah. you what you're going to eat. And um, right. Have you ever covered? But, you guys know this. Yeah, yeah, I've covered this stuff for going on 20 years in my career. You know, it is. I remember 20 years ago, actually, I was in Alabama when this was instituted, when food stamps changed into these electronic benefits cards. And, you know, people, it, it made it a lot easier for people who were working and struggling to go into a store and buy stuff, not having to show the food stamps. It was very humbling and degrading. And a lot of people went hungry because they were ashamed. So, yeah, right. you know, and the, and this is not a program like, in, you know, people remember welfare in the 80s. We can debate that stuff. Uh, but this is not that. This is a program, you know, there's not, you know, there is waste, fraud, and abuse in any government program. But this legitimately keeps people from, from going hungry. And, and the largest, like you said, the largest recipients are the elderly and children. So, and, working, and, yeah. no, and working people. I'm, and working, working families. Are yeah, working, are working poor, and mostly, and and a lot of children who are part of those families, and th- that's the thing that just drives me crazy. Like, could we be any meaner to children in this country? <laughs> I just sometimes well, think that we should let them vote. Well, we'll look, look one, one of the things my kids would definitely agree with that. But look, look, one of the <laughs> things, and I, by the way, I'm a, uh, I would be against my kids voting right now, but um, the. Um, <laughs> The, the the thing about it is, um, the truth of the matter is, and again, this is emblematic of the larger issue with the administration, is this, this, uh, this proposal wasn't taken seriously, and Republicans themselves on the Hill control the appropriation. So it's very important to understand just how insignificant the administration budget proposals are, um, because the congressional party, the Republicans who run both houses of Congress, uh, essentially control appropriations and they want nothing to do with this. So, I'm, and I've taken way too much time. Thank you so much. Tim, on to you. Uh, good evening, Mr. Thrush. How are you, sir? Good. Thank you for having me on. Okay, look, I've been active in politics since 1968, giving away a lot of my age, I know, and I have never seen Democratic voters this angry. Is anger at Donald Trump enough to propel the Democrats to victory in November? It certainly is. Um, Anger seems to be the principal motivating factor in modern American politics. And let me give you a little bit of an example. Back in 2015 and 2016, there was this candidate, the former governor of Florida, by the name of Jeb Bush. I don't know if you recall this gentleman. Uh, a little taller than his brother. <laughs> and Jeb Bush uh, had a brilliant, and I do think this guy is brilliant, a brilliant Republican political act, uh, 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 operative named Mike Murphy who ran his super PAC. And Mike made the decision to spend $150 million on positive advertising, positive advertising, to let people know what Jeb had done as governor of Florida, what he intended to do for the country. It was the dumbest $150 million. <laughs> 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 it, positive advertising has been, you know, it was a $150 million experiment that determined that positive advertising does not work in American politics in 2017 and 20. 2016-2017. So you have this incredible well of anger and frustration on the part of Democrats. And, you know, I think one of the things that has been really undertold about the 2016 election that I think is a, was a big factor in Trump's victory were so many, so many Democrats assumed that Hillary Clinton was going to win. So I think there was – it wasn't so much that Democratic voters – weren't motivated to go vote, it was that they didn't feel that there was a sense of urgency. 
I can't tell you going around the country how many people came up to me and said I would have voted if I thought she was really in danger. But I was reading you reading your paper, Glenn, and you were you were saying <laughs> that, we, that she was going to win. And so I think to even even with you know the disclosure uh, the disclosure by Jim Comey a couple of weeks before the election. So the question now is. Do they feel that sense of urgency? I think they feel that sense of urgency tremendously. And I can tell you, I don't know how this is going to turn out, but I can tell you the Democrats are going to, are going to turn out. Um, the issue here, though, is that the Republican base, which now seems to be in and around the 40 to 43 percent of the country, Trump's base, believe that they're in an existential war for their, for their political lives. They believe that there is a wave that they're holding back. Uh, on immigration, on different groups from the coasts taking over uh, American politics. So, so the people who support Donald Trump vote in every election as if their lives depended upon it. So while Democratic, the Democratic electorate uh, waxes and wanes depending on their enthusiasm, the Republican core electorate is both becoming smaller and more energized. So mm-hmm. the question I think remains – can Democrats weaken the resolve of Republican voters uh, and keep some of them from, from coming out? That combined with sort of the Democratic, the Democratic wave people are anticipating are, you know, are going to uh, – uh, that's going to have a, have a big impact. And you saw it in the congressional race uh, in your state. Mm-hmm. It didn't quite pan out. And obviously mm-hmm. we saw it with, uh, uh, with, the, with uh, the Pennsylvania special election. Right. And in the interest of time, I'm going to go with one more question before I send it back to David. But I wanted to ask you about this. With all the wild stuff that's hitting us every day in the news just trumpeting, a lot of people probably didn't pay any attention to the fact that Cambridge Analytica got expelled from Facebook this week. For the benefit of our listeners, what is the political implication of that? Well, we don't know what the political implication is, and for those, it's a complicated story, but I think it's a blockbuster, and it's, I will uh, put in a plug for one of my best friends, uh, Matt Rosenberg, who broke the story. Nick Confessori mm-hmm. also participated in it. Um, essentially, what they discovered is that Cam- Cambridge Analytica, this uh, uh, Britain-based um, uh, online analytics firm, uh, obtained from Facebook – a lot of personal data, I believe it's 50, from 50, 50 million Americans, including their consumer preferences, their political profiles, extraordinarily valuable. Uh, and the article suggests that it was, uh, it was presented under false pretenses uh, and essentially it was, was culled in order to advantage the Trump campaign and allow them to, uh, to undermine mm. the messaging uh, of the Clinton campaign and, and propagate mm. false news, as we know, which hit Facebook. We mm-hmm. now have a, con- a couple of congressional committees that seem intent on investigating the attorney general from Massachusetts does. The question is, are people really going to start paying attention to this? My suspicion is that this story, while it's extraordinarily important, will be subsumed in the larger Mueller thing. And, and one thing I just want your folks to understand uh, and this is kind of an inside-the-beltway view. Over the past three or four weeks, I would say, the discussion has shifted dramatically from whether or not Donald Trump will be uh, – whether obstruction of justice is, is the big issue that Donald Trump is going to have to deal with versus collusion with the Russians. I would say for uh-huh. the previous six to eight months, people have been talking about obstruction. Now folks are, are in the legal community that's knowledgeable about this seem to indicate that the obstruction thing is almost a foregone conclusion uh, and that this issue of collusion is becoming more and more important. So wow. this investigation for all the noise, uh, the firing of McCabe, all of this stuff, it does seem as if Mueller, who recently requested Trump, the Trump organization's financial records, that Mueller is focusing more on collusion in addition to obstruction of justice. So this thing is getting more and more serious, uh, even though the president's lawyer today called for Mueller uh, to stop investigating. Stunning. And with that, I'm going to send it back to David to close the segment out. David? Yes. Um, Glenn, I, 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 like Tim, could have so many more questions, but I did have one more follow-up to something I had. I just didn't know if it would get covered. 
And that was uh, when the first time the December story came out about Rex Tillerson possibly leaving after he made the comments about uh, Donald Trump, that uh, Defense Secretary Mattis and um, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin and possibly John Kelly all had a little suicide pack, if you will, and if one got fired, they'd all leave. Well, mm. so far nobody else left. Um, what's, does anybody know if there's any more to that suicide pack, or that was just a false story well, I, or, I think, or just a – Well, the, the, the first thing I – well, I think there are people now <laughs> who wouldn't think that that was a suicide pact, that it was a liberation pact. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think, I think Mnuchin – my sense is Mnuchin really was never part of that group. The, the grown-ups table, you know, was McMaster uh, till you know, the original grown-ups table was McMaster, uh, Tillerson, and Mattis and Kelly. And, and what I would say about that is, Kelly was a staunch supporter of Rex Tillerson's until the story that I mentioned by NBC News about uh, Tillerson saying these derogatory things about the president. Once Tillerson said that. Uh, my sense in my reporting is that is that Kelly sort of cut him loose. Uh, Mattis, we know less about. Mattis is a more opaque character and probably a more important one. But I will tell you that towards the end, Kelly uh, Kelly had clearly thrown in the towel with with Tillerson. So whether or not that was Kelly justifying his actions uh, for himself or a genuine change of heart, we don't know. But whatever pact there may have been, and I you know I doubt such things truly existed. Um, it was pulverized by the time that Kelly dismissed Tillerson. Yes. Well, thank mm. you so much for coming on, and we're going to continue to read your work in the New York Times, uh, more on this new uh, social safety net beat, and can't wait to have you on, or hopefully we can get further into that than Catherine was able to. A- anytime, guys. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank Glenn. you, sir. Bye-bye. Yes. Bye. That was Glenn Thrush, New York Times, a great guest, uh, ge- very generous with his time tonight. And um, we don't have a lot of time, but uh, we were talking about General Kelly and just kind of like a little closing question to fit in what we were talking about after and with uh, Glenn Thrush. How much time do you think John Kelly has left in the White House? Catherine, any, any <laughs> guesses? Oh, I, I can't even. You know, I honestly – I don't want to be able to think in that in that space. Like I don't want to imagine what I don't even want to try to imagine what what's on Trump's mind. I just, but I would say weeks rather than months. Yeah. So you think it's pretty soon, sometime this summer? Uh, Tim, your thoughts? Yeah. Uh, Donald Trump doesn't let anyone last a long time, and this guy may be somebody who quits instead of getting fired. I think he just may get finally so disgusted as he sees the last vestiges of, like, normal political people or talented people leaving the White House. We've talked about, you know, how they've just hemorrhaged. People have just left and left and left and left. And uh, finally, I think he's just going to get enough of it and take a walk. Yeah, I think y'all are right. If, if it's sooner, it's going to be a quit. Um, but because mm-hmm. Trump, he's had so many folks he's fired. Uh, he, I'm sure he knows he needs somebody in that role. Um, and one thing I think is if it cool. were to be kind of a firing or a mutual parting of ways, it might be after the November elections because Donald Trump will want his fall guy. Uh. And he'll have to have somebody take the fall yeah, for the losses they're going to take. Uh, dude, this this guy's wanting to get rid of of the rest of his cabinet now because he's bored with them. I mean, <laughs> I'm with Catherine. Who has ever heard of such a thing as what we are seeing? I, I swear, I believe this guy right now. You were talking about Kelly not knowing about this and that happened. I believe Trump is just doing everything practically on his own now, and his staff is finding out about it with the rest of us when he does it. And the scariest thing of all is what Glenn told us. He's got, according to this uh, NBC Bonmouth poll, a 42% approval rating. How in the world has he had it jump up five to seven points? With all the chaos we've seen this past week, the Catherine, tax, any ideas? Uh, that's the re- 
I have no idea. You, you think it's tax cuts, Tim? I think the tax cuts brought four or five percent of Republicans in it that said, "Well, at least we got that." You know, so we can yeah. we can we can endure his craziness, and 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 that's where I think that came from because I think that solid was there all alone. I'm with Thrush on that. Yeah, I do think there's a 35 hard 35 that it's you get hard to get between 35 and 30. I mean, the Stormy Daniels thing isn't doing it. The Russia thing mm. isn't doing it. Yeah, um, there, you a, know how they love that trickle down nonsense. You know how they love that trickle down nonsense over there, and that <laughs> that got him his other six or seven percent. Uh, I believe yeah. that's the ceiling, though, guys. And this is tax season. Somebody gets a refund. If they want to thank Donald Trump and the Republicans, they will. If they don't like paying mm-hmm. their taxes, they're going to say, "Oh, well, Donald Trump would have made it better," and then that'll kind of dissipate <laughs> after April fifteenth. Um, some mm-hmm. of that. Um, so this mm-hmm. would be his best time to ride high on that. Well, um, great show. Um, Till next week. Been the Cudsey Vine. Good night, y'all. Good night, guys. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice.